I'm Noel Abbott, Chief Operating Officer of Gondrepreneur.com, and you are listening to the Gondrepreneur Podcast, where we speak directly with cannabis business owners, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm back in Seattle, Washington, for another special on-site edition of our podcast at Headset, a market data and business intelligence platform for cannabis industry business owners. Today, I'm joined by Headset's co-founder and CEO, Cy Scott, who is also one of the original co-founders of the website Leafly. Uh, thanks for having me back, Cy. How are you? Yeah, great, Noel. Thanks. Happy to be back. Awesome. Um, this is the third episode that I've come down here to record with Headset, and uh, for anyone who's hearing this uh, for the first time, I recommend you checking out the two episodes that we've already recorded, the first of which focused on the experience of bootstrapping uh, Leafly, one of the most successful websites related to cannabis in the world. Um, and we had all three of the founders, uh, Brian Wanselich and Scott Vickers were here as well. Um, and then the second episode focused on consumer demographics and purchasing behavior um, and appealing to consumers in the Washington market. So definitely check those out if you haven't already. Um, but I'm really excited to get into today's conversation because I want to dig into the big question that is facing, I would imagine, just about every entrepreneur in the cannabis industry. And that is, how can I make sure that I'm maximizing my chances for survival in this market to build a company that sustains itself and that will grow and thrive in the future um, in spite of so many obstacles and so much volatility? Uh, so uh, ahead of this interview, I've asked you to take a look at the data that Headset has aggregated and the experience that you have working directly with producers and retailers as the market has evolved to see if you can come up with some surface level impressions and predictions that can help business owners in emerging markets uh, like California um, and Canada and other places that are opening up uh, to help them plan for the future. So before I get into the details of all of that, um, and for anyone who may not have listened to the previous episodes yet, uh, could you give me a quick overview of the scope of the data that we're looking at and how it was gathered? Sure, so Headset is a data and analytics company. Our mission is to help cannabis operators take a lot of the guesswork out of business decisions by leveraging data. Um, we are able to get that data by working pretty closely with retailers. So we work directly with them, uh, connecting to their point of sale systems. Uh, we give retailers um, business intelligence, so a good sense of what's going on with their own internal data, sales trends, uh, better understanding their inventory carry, um, you know what their bud tenders are selling, and so on. Uh, we're also able to help them benchmark against kind of uh, market averages, so they know you know how they're performing. Uh, and then what we do is we actually uh, look at all those transactions in aggregate, so we anonymize, aggregate, and and classify and code those products um, to get a sense of what's happening across a broader market from a consumer um, transaction uh, angle. And so uh, the data that we're going to be talking about today is kind of our, our Washington state data. Um, you know, right now we're processing about 75% of every dollar that transacts in Washington. Uh, we've got a, a very significant footprint here um, with, with retailers. Uh, it was our first market, it's our backyard given that we're in Seattle. Uh, that said, we are in a number of other markets as well, including Colorado, Nevada, Oregon. We'll be launching our California and Canada insights uh, later this year. Excited for that. Uh, but what's really cool and exciting about Washington is that it's, you know, one of two relatively mature markets given, you know, Washington and, and the Colorado market, uh, both legalized at the same time. You know, one of the interesting things about Washington is that, you know, they took the model, the dispensary model, and kind of threw it out the window and started from scratch. So it was really interesting to kind of see this 
uh, industry developed from you know the zero to one, as they say. Um, where Colorado had a very mature uh, medical market, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a lot of traceability, so they were able to kind of convert that into adult use. So it had a lot of legacy medical side. Um, you know, what's interesting is that Washington has been, you know, in operations now for, you know, three solid years, mm-hmm. uh, more than that, but we have, you know, year over year data across three years. Um, so we're starting to recognize some really cool trends. Um, I think you said it great, you know, as, as indicators for, you know, other markets, other entrepreneurs that are that are looking at spaces like California and Canada, how that impacts. So really excited to, to kind of talk about, you know, what we're seeing here and uh, see what kind of insights we can derive. Awesome. So yeah, now uh, we're almost four years into having a legal market in Washington. Um, And I think it's been about two years since the medical uh, industry was kind of shut down by the legislature. Um, Since then, um, a lot of startups have tried to hit the ground running, um, but due to the volatility of the market and other unforeseen challenges, many of them have either been forced to shut down or sell their business um, over the past four years, how many producers have ultimately operated in Washington and how many are currently still operating? Sure. So uh, the state actually publishes license data. So we get a good sense of kind of the total number of, of licensee holders since uh, the initial launch of the market. And, you know, it's, it's over 500 retailers um, and over a thousand producer processors, closer to 1,400 since the beginning. Uh, when we look at um, you know the data that we track, we we do uh, work with processors, but we also look at what we consider brands. So, processors, um, you know, being the product manufacturers, the license holders often will have multiple brands underneath their processing license. So. Um, you know, we track close to a thousand uh, brands. Actually, um, you know, when we look at kind of year-over-year growth, it actually dipped about 10% this year. Um, you know, from um, 990 uh, last year to about 900 brands sold this year. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, we're still in the first half of 2018, so we may see new brands coming to the market, and we may end up. Uh, doing better than last year, but it kind of gives you a sense of the number of brands that have been sold, um, you know, in retailers in 2018, about 900. So, you know, we're looking at about 1,400 licenses. That's across mm-hmm. producers and processors, so the wholesale kind of growers. Some have, you know, producer and processor licenses, but when we look at the brands that consumers are, are purchasing, uh, about 900 is kind of where we're at today. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's an indicator that the, you know, the market's reaching this point of maturation where the ability to support that many uh, brands is being tested? I do think so. Um, and that, a lot of that is reflected in some of the growth numbers we're mm-hmm. seeing. Um, when we look at you know, 2016 versus 2015, um, you know, we had over 100% year-over-year growth. Uh, when we look at 2017 versus 2016, it's, it's dipped down to about you know, 33% year-over-year growth. Mm-hmm. And then looking year-to-date, year we're just over 10% uh, growth this time last year. So you're starting to see some maturity of the market. The, the growth is, is still great and, and very strong. but it's just not, slowing down. It's slowing down, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so I think that um, there is uh, you know, a saturation of brands, given that you know, processes are 
often producing multiple brand, brands, sometimes down market, value price brands, sometimes up market, more premium price brands. Everyone's tr- kind of trying everything, seeing what'll stick. I think that now, you know, given that there's been a number of years that some of these brands have been on the market, certain brands are getting sunsetted as they, they haven't been performing. You know, there could be um, a limited retailer appetite given that they have, you know, finite shelf space, they can only carry so many brands. Mm-hmm. And it, a consumer can only, you know, juggle so many brands in their head and remembering, you know, who's who. So when you're, when you're talking about, you know, 900 brands for sale in the market that's that's a large number um, you know so I think all those factors could be impacting that you know that said by the end of the year maybe we break a thousand maybe we see some more brand growth but we don't really expect it to to continue uh, at the rate that it's been exactly um, do you know if there are license holders who have had their licenses from the beginning and it you know still not used still not put it to use for a brand um, that's a good question. I, we don't know that from the data that we okay. see directly, uh, given that our data comes from the retailers. Um, but you know, we have heard of such cases. We've also heard of, of license holders that have transferred licenses of, right. of consolidation, things like that. Happening. That's one thing that I've heard a lot of is you know, while uh, companies may be going under the company, it doesn't necessarily die. It just has new owners and gets acquired by another company. Or- exactly. As far as we know, in Washington, I think there's only been one. Um, producer processor license has been completely retired and hasn't been transferred or or sold. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. And I I think um, kind of to that that brand point, you know, we're seeing a lot of these larger brands taking more and more of uh, the market. Mm -hmm. Um, Some recent numbers, you know, this year we're seeing um, the top 10 brands taking 20% of the market. Um, which is pretty interesting, you know, given so many licenses that are out there when you're looking at just 10 brands, you know, taking down 20% of the market. And in a market like Washington, which is, you know, over a billion dollars uh, in, in sales each year, it's a, it's a big amount of the yeah. market. Let's talk about pricing um, and the behavior of prices as the market has matured. Um, Prices have fluctuated quite a bit since uh, legalization took effect, both on the retail and the wholesale side. Um, What was the timeline of the major trends in this regard, and did you notice a consistent correlation between retail and wholesale prices, or have you heard that they were um, related, or, or did they fluctuate independent of each other? Sure. So, you know, when the market first launched, um, you know, prices were very high, uh, you know, supply was very limited, so that's just kind of the natural byproduct. Um, you know, that's something that you, you hear about in markets like California, where, you know, people are complaining about taxation of the product and, and high prices. I mean, it, it really is just a supply and demand problem in the near term. Um, you know, we saw some very significant price decreases into 2016 and 2017 at the retail level. Um, you know, at this point, uh, prices have, have stabilized quite a bit. That said, we're looking at it from the retail side of the business and uh, from the the processor, distributor, vendor, wholesale to retailer. Um, You know, we have heard of, you know, grower prices, you know, price per gram or per pound kind of continuing to decline. Uh, But at the retail level, prices have have stabilized uh, somewhat. You know, overall average item price has, has, has dipped a bit. Um, but we see, um, you know, more people purchasing more products. So basket sizes essentially the same. So a basket, you can think of like a transaction. Um, a basket has been pretty consistent, about you know thirty, thirty-two dollars per transaction. Um, so people over- kind of know in their mind potentially that they're going into, you know, with this amount of money to spend, um, kind of taking that same mentality that you probably had prior to legalization of just, uh, you know, I'm. 
planning out my week or month and going in with a fixed budget. Exactly. That behavior hasn't really changed at all. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, they have a planned spend and they're just pur- purchasing more products mm-hmm. at, at the transaction. Um, we also see you know, margins, and margins are, are roughly 50-55% across all the categories that we track. It varies category to category, um, but that's kind of a, a good ballpark. So you know, pricing is holding. So I think at the retail side, um, you know, they're, they seem pretty happy um, with the margins. I mean, those are good margins for retail. Um, you know, the, the processors are hopefully, you know, able to produce the product at the mm-hmm. rate that they're generating some good margins. Again, mm-hmm. we don't really have visibility in the, the wholesale side of the business. Um, but at the retail side, you know, pricing has kind of stabilized and, and we expect it to kind of stay right where it's at for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I've definitely heard uh, from a lot of growers um, that there has been kind of a, a race to the bottom in terms of the wholesale prices. And uh, I, I even saw uh, recently on Facebook, someone um, said that they had noticed that an order had been placed for flour at just 20 cents per gram. Um, and you know, while, while you may not have the data to, uh, to look into those transactions and, and identify the trends, what do you think might be the main factors uh, to cause prices to drop so steeply? And do you think that this is going to just kind of be the new normal or is it going to get worse or is it just a temporary phase that will kind of get sorted out? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's it's a, probably a few things. Um, one of them is some of the the scale we're seeing from the larger brands, probably putting price pressure on the growers um, or economies of scale. You know, maybe it's twenty cents a gram, but maybe they're selling quite a bit of, sure. of bulk product. Um, you know, that I think that's one one area. I think you know, there's probably too much production if, if we're talking twenty cents a gram wholesale price. That's that's pretty low. Um, you know, this is while it is you know becoming a mature market, and we're we're three years into it. There's probably still some some changes that we can expect to see. Maybe some more consolidation on the grow side. Um, but yeah, that that is a low price, and I do think it has to do with um, you know probably these brands, you know these processors driving the price down. They're probably needing to keep their wholesale mm-hmm. cost or their supply cost in line so they can get those margins to the retailer. Uh, so that might be putting pressure on the growers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hopefully it stabilizes for those growers. Hopefully there you know continues to be more increase in demand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not sure how many more licenses are going to be issued on that side, but you know, I would I would uh, think that probably would want some limitations around that as well to help maintain some of that wholesale pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, have you noticed? Um, the volatility and the tumultuous nature of the market um, affecting different types of producers and different business models differently. Uh, for example, are there certain product categories that um, have proven themselves to be more or less secure than others? Yeah, I think that um, you know we, we track uh, about nine categories of products right now, and that's everything from flour to pre-roll, concentrates, vapor pins, capsules, tinctures, topicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it's a wide variety of products. I think that uh, you know what we're seeing is certain categories like um, like flour continuing to lose market share. Uh, you know that said, they're still you know well over fifty percent of you know all sales go to a flour product. Uh-huh. Uh, but flour, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting category. Um, there's that has the largest amount of brands in that category. I think the barrier to entry is the lowest, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's 
it's the product, you know, and curing process and packaging is relatively simple compared to maybe producing an edible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with an edible, you have to have not only the packaging um, and processing, but some sort of recipe. Um, you know, you need a commercial grade kitchen facility mm-hmm. that's licensed to be able to produce. Um, so harder to not to mention all the the knowledge and the experience that would be separate than you know people who have been growing forever may already be familiar with. Um, they're kind of inventing a, a whole new commercial operation when you get into the really complex you know edibles and, and processed uh, products. Totally, I mean, ex- exactly it. You know, same thing with uh, things like vapor pens and uh, concentrates. I mean, the extraction process can be complex. There's a variety of ways of doing it. There's technology involved. Um, there's you know quality control um, and that's stuff that you know you don't get at the same level with flour you know that said you know flour is very versatile you know it's very popular uh, arguably a richer experience for many uh, given kind of the nuance of the strain um, and the and flour production Um, but we are seeing a little more stability in in some of the the more complex categories like edibles and vapor pins not to say that they're not challenging and there's not competition uh, it just doesn't seem to be at that same rate that you'd see in flour um, so you know it's if, if you had to pick a category that's a little more secure it might be one of those um, that uh, you know does require some additional knowledge some additional uh, labor to produce the product um, versus something like flour um, do you think that yeah. the um, the lower number of brands may also have something to do with the um, security from a from a consumer's perspective too that it's easier to develop brand loyalty perhaps or absolutely um, y- you know it's just you recognize a brand you, you like that the flavor of the mm-hmm. edible maybe it's a low dose mint and you you like the the taste and the consistency mm-hmm. so you might go with that brand you know the flower purchasing process is is a little bit different you kind of walk in um, if you have some idea of a strain you might be interested in, or even a processor, you know you might want to know what what new strains are available. Mm-hmm. Often, you know retailers don't carry, um, you know every strain that a that a processor produces. So you're always looking for the for what's new, and maybe maybe you like a particular strain, and that that brand uh, has run out at the retailer. So you're looking for a comparable from another brand, and mm-hmm. then it's easy to kind of jump and you get introduced to a different brand. But that can be harder for for something like a, a vapor pen. Um, or a an edible beverage, things like mm-hmm. that, where you know to the replacement's not as as simple. Right. Um, so I think that uh, you know that de- definitely does have an impact um, on some of that that security uh, for sure. So now that we're in this phase um, in the market where there are you know companies that have been kind of duking it out and fighting for market share um, for several years. Uh, what do the most successful companies that have been operating since the early days uh, seem to have in common with each other? Sure. So I think when we look at those those large <clears throat> brands that are you know very successful, um, there's a couple a couple common um, factors. Uh, one of which is distribution. So having a broad reach. Um, you know, since we're talking about the Washington market, you know, for Washington State, for those that aren't familiar, you know, kind of has a, a western part of the state and an eastern part of the state. And so it's the operators that can kind of cross um, both parts of the state that have the largest retailer footprint mm-hmm. uh, seem to do um, really well. Also, those larger brands are producing multiple categories of products, um, sometimes all categories where, you know, from flour to pre-roll all the way to edibles and mm-hmm. beverages. 
Um, so I think having you know product uh, diversification is is critical as well. It also just position positions yourself nicely to see you know if there are certain trends. Maybe it is a low dose. It's easier to make adjustments as you as you notice changes in the industry. Exactly. If you're strictly a flower producer and you know while flowers command such a large majority of the market, the growth rates aren't there. Um, and you see growth in, in vapor pens, or we see you know 30% uh, year-to-date, year-over-year growth, um, and you want to all of a sudden make a vapor pen, that can be tough to do if you're not already invested in that. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the, the trends, is just continuing to invest in your product, um, product selection, uh, your product catalog, what you're producing, um, what you're giving uh, customers. I think customers, you know, as they start to gravitate towards these these brands, you know, we're still kind of early for brand loyalty. Um, but, you know, as you do start to um, identify with maybe a certain brand, if you know that they're producing other categories of products, then you're going to continue to purchase from that brand versus, you know, going to a competitive brand because mm-hmm. it's in a, a different category of products. You know, we, we see trends, um, you know, in, in, in transaction data where certain categories like beverages are often um, purchased alongside another category. So wow. people, when they go to a store, aren't necessarily always just uh, purchasing a, a basket full of beverages. They're, mm-hmm. they're usually like a throw-in item, not necessarily that, that store driver that gets you there. Um, or flour is a little different. You know, flour is something that people, when they purchase flour, often they're only purchasing flour. So if you know that, you know, beverages go well with other products mm-hmm. and you maybe sell one of those other products, um, it's great to, to look at making a beverage, right? Maybe something complimentary. So that's that's some common um, you know trends. I think um, you know customer education. So the brands that are really investing in, in marketing, mm-hmm. albeit you know marketing is it can be difficult in this industry, but yeah. you know trying to educate the consumer about the the nuances of their product, the benefits of their product. I think that that's um, helpful. I think uh, some of the larger brands you see, you know, nice packaging, um, you know, good branding uh, really stands out on the on the, the shelf space there at the retailer, which is critical and, and, you know, arguably a way to market given that, you know, we can't do television advertising mm-hmm. or or uh, even uh, digital advertising on, on things like Facebook or Instagram is very right. difficult. People are having their social media accounts shut down left and right. Constantly. Um, even when they say, you know, this is not for sales, these are just photos, you know. Exactly. And so, you know, having great packaging is, you know, important from a marketing perspective. And that is another um, kind of trend that we see with some of the, the larger brands in the market. I'll admit, you know, I, I like to think that I purchase, you know, based on examining the, the product itself. But it's so difficult in Washington because you can't actually take it out and look at it and smell it. So I've definitely been convinced by packaging just like, oh, this looks new. This looks different. I'll give that a try. Totally, totally. Packaging, um, you know, bud tender recommendation, what they're hearing is always another driver. Um, You know, so if the brands are working with the bud tenders, you know, helping educate the bud tenders, doing outreach, I think is is pretty important um, because they they do kind of kind of maintain that relationship with the the consumer when they come in. So those are just some some parallels um, that we see uh, for sure across these these larger brands. Yeah, a lot of uh, producer processors in Washington have uh, told me how difficult it is to get to actually get your products into the retail shops uh, because they're they're being solicited nonstop. Retailers um, and bud tenders they have all of these different brands trying to give them samples, trying to push their product um, to get that shelf space, um, and and it's really hard to break through the noise. Um, even if you have unique selling points, um, it doesn't really matter. There's there's just such a saturation that. 
um, everybody's really wary of being pitched and nobody wants to commit to anything. Um, with that in mind, what, what are some things that you think producers can do to kind of gain an advantage and, and really help their brand be the one that um, gets through to the retailers and the bud tenders and is the one that you know, um, sticks with them? Yeah, that's a great point. It, it can be difficult. You know, when you think about a retailer, um, you know, they have finite shelf space, right? So they only have so much real estate, uh, so much room in the display cases or on the wall behind them. Um, you know, we help retailers through the business intelligence side of, of what Headset does to really help them optimize their inventory, optimize, you know, the products they carry so that they can better determine, you know, when products uh, maybe should be sunsetted or they should discontinue certain brands over others. Um, and hopefully that starts to generate opportunities for some of these new uh, product manufacturers that, that are coming to the stores. Um, but you're right, it, it can be a hard selling point, right? Especially if you're producing, you know, flour and it's a... A sativa strain and you know maybe it's a strain that are they already sell uh, from another vendor um, it can be difficult to kind of crack uh, you know that that retailer to get into that into that store so um, you know we think that there's there's things you can do as a product manufacturer um, that will help in it obviously you know you need to have great product and consistent supply um, you know good price point um, but if you can provide a little more value to the retailer, I think uh, there's a lot there as well. One of the services that we have um, at Headset, we call Headset Bridge, which essentially is a, a vendor-managed inventory platform. And we have a lot of retailers that, that leverage that um, system and work with product companies to be able to share data back to those vendors, specifically their, their inventory, their price point, their sales velocity. And the vendors, the product manufacturer, uses that information to uh, better uh, support the retailer. As you can imagine, a retailer is very busy. You know, a lot of them, um, you know, have a lot going on. Um, yeah. They've got inventory managers sometimes. Sometimes the inventory manager is the store owner. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, juggling a lot of things. So, if you can go into a store and say, you know, not only you know, will I give you consistent product, um, you know, that's well regarded, but I can also provide additional services and make sure that you know you never run out of stock because I can do vendor managed inventory and, and make sure that you're always uh, you know well supplied with that Goldilocks amount mm -hmm. of inventory you know not too much not too little um, you know that's that's valuable for them um, you know maybe you want to run a promotion and, and you can cross promote that retail location um, you know headset bridge allows you as a vendor to measure the impact of that promotion and to really show ROI to the retailer to say, look, this is what this is my advertising spend, and this is what I'm doing out there, and this is how much it drove sales at your store. So you know, talk so not, not only are you doing these um, kind of co-marketing efforts, um, but you're also able to demonstrate that they're having an effect. Exactly. Uh, again, it comes back to just the retailers being very busy, right? So if they do determine, to, like, I'll carry some of your products to see how it does, you can show, you know, right away, kind of ROI. Um, there, so I think coming to a retailer, um, you know, with a, a great product, but also some value-added services, goes a long way to you know making sure that you can keep that shelf space or, or get that shelf space in the first place. Awesome. Um, so, so looking ahead um, at some of the new markets that are coming online, obviously California is um, going to be huge. Um, Canada is going to be huge. Um, I think they're actually about the same population-wise, at about 40, 40 million people, um, compared to you know Washington and Colorado, which are you know four four to five million. Um, how do you anticipate the growth in these new markets uh, will differ from Washington's growth, um, and and how will the differences in the regulatory structures affect this? 
Sure, yeah, and, that, and it kind of goes back to the, the topic that um, what's exciting about a market like Washington or a market like Colorado is it's a good lens into the kind of future of a market like California uh-huh. or Canada. You know, given, you know, California has had a market for a long time, you know, from the medical world. Um, but, you know, this is the first time that they're able to sell uh, adult use, you know, 21 and over without a doctor's recommendation. So, you know, you're going to see some, some changes. Um, I think that uh, you'll probably see a lot of patterns, um, the, the product category sales like we see now, where you know things like flour uh, in the beginning of a market drive you know, a huge percentage, uh, you know, 90% of sales. Um, in a market like uh, you know, Canada, right, where they're going to go uh, online this year selling only flour and mm-hmm. tinctures. Um, you know, obviously, given that it's really pretty much only flour, most of the sales are going to go to flour. But as they start to uh, introduce new product categories based on you know upcoming legislation, mm-hmm. so being able to sell edibles or vapor pens, you're going to see kind of a shakeout where flour is you know 50% of the market, edibles 10% of the market, you know mm-hmm. concentrates you know about 10% of the market, and so on. Um, so you'll start to see some of those same patterns happening. Um, you know, California somewhat already has that. You know, they're they're converting a lot of the medical products now. There's like the right. six month grace period where they're able to sell. We're still within that in the first half of, of 2018. Um, you know, that will probably change once um, all the the licensing structure is finalized and licenses have been issued. Uh, at which point you're probably going to see numbers more in line with what you see in in Washington, Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, around percentage of market going to certain categories. Sure. Um, we're probably going to see the same pattern with a, a number of larger brands taking a majority, or not a majority, but a large percentage of the market. Um, you know, if you can think about, like you said, the, the population differences. I mean, right. you know, six, seven times population, um, six, seven times probably market size. So you're looking at, you know, six, seven, eight billion dollar year in sales. Um, you know, for California and, and same thing for Canada. Um, if that's going to 10, 20% of that market's going to 10 brands, that's, that's a sizable amount. And those 10 brands, you know, that, that we were, that I mentioned earlier, you know, are not all created equal. It's not divvied mm-hmm. up equally. So there's some big winners in that. So, uh, expect to see that as well. You know, who it's to be determined who those brands are going to be in, in a market like California, you have some legacy medical brands that had good reach had good uh, dispensary footprint and, mm-hmm. and continue to have that, you know, although I think they're going through... And the consumer following as well. Exactly, yeah. consumer following um, from, the, from the medical days. Mm-hmm. So that will, that will carry some significant weight going forward. So we can expect them to continue to be, to be leaders. Um, but, uh, you know, in a market like Canada, um, where it's, you know, there are like LPs, licensed right. producers mm-hmm. that are in the medical market. And, um, it's a lot strict. A lot more strict in terms of who they're issuing these licenses to, and there's there's a lot fewer of them going out, right? Exactly, um, and their their audience, you know, I think the, the Canada medical patient counts like roughly two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. patients for the entire uh, country. Um, you know, they're they're kind of starting over in a lot of ways. Probably not a lot of um, uh, consumer, you know, sentiment or uh, people that you know know those brands immediately, like right. maybe in California where they might. Um, so that's going to be quite interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, you know, California has uh, an interesting model with um, 
distribution and in Canada as well. Um, so that will be interesting to see how that impacts uh, these brands and these product manufacturers. In markets like Washington and, and Colorado, a lot of distribution is done directly by the processors themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they go to more traditional distribution model, it will be interesting to see you know, how that uh, helps or hurts potentially uh, the processors given that they might not have that direct relationship with the retailer. That mm-hmm. relationship may exist through the distributor. Um, you know that that could be interesting, but it also provides benefits because the the product manufacturer can focus on manufacturing products, not logistics and distribution. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that'll be an interesting dynamic to see how that that uh, changes the landscape versus a market like Washington, Colorado. I um, wonder how much leverage the distributors are going to have over which brands get placement in the retail on the retail side of things as well. Um, exactly, it's kind of like you know in Washington. Producers are, are almost responsible for their own placement to a degree. They're the ones out, you know, selling their products to the retailers. But then in, in California, they may have to hand that responsibility over, which you know might be uh, might be a scary thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Especially given the limit limited um, marketing abilities, a lot of these right. processors have. They leverage the in store. Um, mm-hmm in-store displays and uh, positioning to really be that marketing channel for them. Um, it will be interesting, you know, to see see how that that plays out. Um, we've seen things in Canada. There's a lot of, you know, press coming out of Canada given so many of these LPs are publicly traded. You see a lot of uh, press releases and news about, you know, deals that LPs are making with retail outlets, yeah. um, investments they're making in retail outlets to try and build that relationship because I think that they're aware that, you know, the distributor will own it in a lot of ways. So they're trying to create relationships uh, to continue that. But uh, that's something that we're excited to see how that will play out. Um, another nuance of those markets that will be interesting well, in, in California um, and Oregon, you have the delivery model, mm-hmm. um, which you know, has existed for medical, but uh, to see, you know, what that looks like in an adult use market is is new um, and something that, you know, Washington and Colorado do not have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to that point in um, Canada, uh, there's going to be e-commerce in, in many provinces. Uh, not all provinces, I believe. In some provinces will be government-run e-com, others wow. will be private, some will be a hybrid. Um, and is that where, where you place the order online and it get sh- gets shipped to your house or will you go pick it up? At a, at a pharmacy? Gets shipped to your house. Okay. Uh, given that Canada will have federal legalization mm-hmm. this year, yeah. um, they can do you know more traditional e-commerce. So the Amazons mm-hmm. of the world uh, could technically sell cannabis and, mm-hmm. well, maybe not technically, maybe they'd have to have a license to do it, but uh, similar situations where you go online, um, you go to a website, uh, you add things to your cart, you check out, and it's delivered, mm-hmm. uh, much like you can um, you know, purchase alcohol online mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. So that'll be an exciting uh, dynamic. Um, and then we're really looking forward to seeing you know, what kind of brands uh, come out of these new markets. Um, you know, we see news in Canada of LPs building out their adult use brands, mm-hmm. um, kind of they're already starting to get ahead of it, given that it's gonna be just flour and, and uh, their, their tinctures that they're able to sell now. Um, it will be interesting to see you know, what, what happens to that market as the legislation loosens up a bit. You might've seen some of the news about the packaging restrictions. It's all you know, plain color packaging, small logo, mm-hmm. which is very different than you know, what we're talking about in Washington, right. where you know, packaging is a differentiator and, and right. a way for brands to stand out. So uh, a lot of exciting um, stuff ahead, and we look forward to you know, working with retailers in these markets to be able to see you know, what's really going on. 
Yeah, another thing I could I could see um, being very different in the upcoming California market um, is just the allowance of investments. Um, I know in Washington it was pretty strict um, when the market launched. You had to be a resident for so many years, um, and you know they, they weren't just allowing anybody to come in and invest in the industry. But I think in California it's it's wide open, and uh, the legacy uh, growers and you know people who've been operating in the industry for a long time are just going to be flooded with all this new uh, competitive, um, well-backed companies, um, it's definitely going to be a, a very competitive market for sure. It is, it is. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a double-edged sword. You know, mm -hmm. you want more capital coming into the space. I'm sure those legacy growers that have been doing it for a long time, they've sure. been starved for, for investment. Yeah. They're, for, they're going to be able to take that investment money. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So it's, it's kind of making sure that um, you know they can get that investment money and put it to good use to maintain their positions and scale their businesses. Mm -hmm. And then on the, the flip side of that, the new, new people coming into the space that might not have the experience in the cannabis industry, you know, they need to be able to take that capital and make smart decisions with mm -hmm. it because, you know, cannabis, while it is, uh, you know, as, as we see in, in mature markets like Washington, you know, playing out very much like other consumer packaged goods, it does have its nuances, right? It's a it's a very unique product. And I know we, we create parallels to things like alcohol in a lot of ways, but it's more than just alcohol, right? When you're talking about things like um, topicals, you know, mm -hmm. it, it kind of like just in that example kind of starts to push into like skincare and, and right it's not just a recreational substance in a lot of ways it's a therapeutic substance and and people people use it for all kinds of things exactly so coming you know to the industry from you know one one lens one framework you know it's it's more nuanced so the people that are that will be coming in now that investment is allowed um, in markets like California, hopefully they can, you know, identify that and, and stay competitive. And on the other side, you know, the, the ones that have been uh, in, in the business for a long time are able to scale their operations in this kind of new world that we're all operating in. So if, if I'm a producer startup in one of these new markets, such as uh, California, um, what things should I watch out for in terms of industry trends? And, and um, what should I be aware of um, in terms of the, the direction that the market's heading and how that could affect my business? And are there steps that I can take to kind of mitigate the risks associated with that? Sure, yeah, so um, we definitely recommend, you know, everyone uh, utilizing data to drive their decisions. Um, you know, it used to be okay, you know, long ago to just say, I'm gonna make an edible and I'm gonna package it like this and it's gonna sell well. Uh, that's definitely not the case now. So. Um, you know, definitely looking at the data and as far as, you know, what data to look at, um, I think it's great to start at a high level um, at, the, at the category or segment level, right? Mm -hmm. So really determine, you know, are you going to be producing a vapor pen uh, or should you focus on a pre-roll? And if it is a pre-roll, should you be looking at, you know, connoisseur pre-rolls versus multiple multi-packs or mm -hmm. single, uh, single gram pre-rolls? Um, and then once you kind of determine, you know, where where the opportunity is by looking at, you know, the not only the market share but the growth rates of those categories, um, I would start to look at the competitive landscape and mm -hmm. find other operators there. Who's going to be the competition? Um, you know, who's there now that's producing in that in that subcategory that you're looking at? Um, you know, what what products are they selling that are doing well? Why are those doing well? Um, what do their margins look like? Um, you know, and then start to look at things like price elasticity and finding out, you know, where can you price your products that fit the market. Uh, if you're new to mar the market, you know, maybe you compete on price. 
um, maybe you're a higher price because it's a, a more premium product, uh, what have you. I think looking at those numbers um, is really a good starting point um, to building that brand. So I would start, you know, kind of the category market share. Um, you know, look at you know percentages. Look at the number of operators that are in there. Look at you know where majority of the sales are going. Look at um, you know new product introductions. Um, we've got great dashboards for that where. Um, a new product comes to market, we highlight it, we talk about how well it's doing immediately. Um, so you can kind of start to dig into that and see you know, if it's something that's maybe noisier than other categories, maybe jump to those categories. There's a lot of categories like the capsules, the tinctures and topicals that have very high growth rates but mm -hmm. have very small market share right now, you know, one, two percent in the market. Um, you know, maybe that's where you want to be. Um, maybe you want to be scale, I would produce a little bit of everything if you can. Um, you know, it's a very costly endeavor. It takes a lot of expertise. You know, it's easier said than done. Um, but, you know, I would definitely attempt that because mm -hmm. it seems like scales where you're going to really have win. that ability to to make pivots as needed or, or to identify the areas that are performing best for you. Exactly. And then from there, I would look at, you know, services, uh, value add that you can provide and, you know, not just the, the products you produce, but also the services that you're able to provide your retail customers. Um, you know, as, as a big differentiator as you go to market. Mm -hmm. Well, Sai, uh, thanks for having me. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, thanks again for the opportunity to come down here and record the show and for sharing your insight on the, you know, the growth and the maturation of the Washington market and what we can expect uh, in the emerging markets. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure to be here. This has been a special edition of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. You can find our podcast on our website, Gondrepreneur.com, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, um, or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Noel Abbott. Um, thank you for joining us.